This week on Writers Inc. What I love to do is I love to write in the mornings because that is when our subconscious is still kind of, you know, lazing about and has a lot of creativity and you're not tired and you can just plow out the words and get them out there. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. What's going on today, JD? Oh, dude, I am in construction hell again. Again! <laughs> again. So remember, um, I, I told you we found some granite steps on the, the front of the house that, the that go down from yeah. the front. Yeah, yeah. And they had gotten buried uh, years back, like back in the, the early 80s from the, the former homeowner. They, they completely covered them with dirt. Um, so we're, we're getting ready to build a porch and I've got the permit and everything submitted for the porch. And it, it, the initial permit got denied because they needed a whole bunch of calculations, which I've got like 99% of, and I haven't turned it back in yet. Um, but we, we needed to figure out where those steps actually were in order to, you know, figure out where the, the porch steps have to end, you know, cause obviously they have to meet up with the, the existing steps. Um, so I had our landscaper uncover them. Um, and I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, but the building inspector from the town came like racing down our street yesterday <laughs> and like his, his van like squealed a whole a halt up right outside our door and he like jumps out and he's like, JD, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Uh, you know, because some of these steps are actually on town property, which I, I think I talked about on the, the podcast, but like my driveway used to be the street um, and, and they decided to turn it into a circle. So, it, you know, the, the road basically ends at a cul-de-sac and then it continues up into my driveway and then my driveway just sort of ends. But like my driveway was originally supposed to be a road connecting to the next street over. Um, so I technically don't own my driveway. It's, it's city property. I own the, the lot that my house is on and I own the lot across the street and it's a little over an acre between the two of them, but the driveway splits everything right down the middle. Um, so like these steps, they're half on my, the lot that I own. And then the other half of the steps are on the town property. So now I've, I, I'm not sure where this is going to go, but you know, like the town itself has to vote on whether or not I can have steps there. <laughs> and you know, there's liability issues and it's, yeah. So I'm, and, and what's killing me is like, I'm looking out my office window and I can see the steps and they're gorgeous. I mean, they're, they're at the bottom, they're, they're seven feet wide granite. And then they, there's like five of those. And then there's five more that are six feet wide. And then a couple more that are five feet wide. And they, they kind of roll up the hill. Um, you know, why they were ever covered, I have no idea. Um, but, you know, I, I'm hoping they don't make me tear them out or anything silly. You know, I've got a feeling I might be in, in for like a, some kind of legal battle. But, you know, my, my brain tends to always, you know, play out like worst case scenario, you know, which is a really bad thing to do. Like you're not supposed to worry about things that haven't happened yet. Right. Uh, because you'll, you'll tend to stress yourself out way more than just dealing with the reality of what's really happening. Um, but I, you know, just like anybody else, I just can't keep my brain from doing it. So, you know, the, the writer portion of my brain starts working out, you know, 50 different scenarios of how this can play out. And, you know, like it it's almost like playing chess where like, I know what they're going to do next. And I think about what I'm going to do next. And I think about what they're going to do next. And none of this stuff has happened yet, but I like play out these entire scenarios in my, in my head. And, 
yeah, so I, I haven't slept. <laughs> I guess it's the moral moral of the story. I was um, as you're describing this, I'm thinking like I don't know, man. It, it it sounds like there's a thriller novel in there somewhere where like they uncover the last step and there's something underneath it that wasn't supposed to be there. Well, the real mystery is like why they were ever covered up, you know? Because like granite steps, like these are really old. They're they're hand carved, you know. This is like back when they had tooled this stuff by hand, um, you know. So they're they're worth a decent chunk of money. So, it, but there had to be a reason. And and like I I was originally told that the the last homeowner just didn't like people walking up and down the the front of his yard. He wanted them to go through the the little sidewalk that he created on the side, um, which may very well be the reason. But you know, who, who knows? I mean, they're. They, We'll find out. I'm guessing somebody in the town is probably digging through town records to see if they were like told to, to cover them up yeah. at some point or, you know, it's, and the, you know, the other part that I'm, I'm kind of working on is like legally I could take possession of this driveway after a certain amount of time because nobody has ever maintained it other than the, the homeowners. So like the town has never plowed it. Um, they don't maintain the, you know, the hill, like all, all this property. So there's a, a rule and I forget what the name of it is, but it's similar to uh, eminent domain, but it's like the opposite where a homeowner can take possession of property from a, a municipality. Um, so I'm, so I'm looking at something like that and I don't want to go down that route unless it's, you know, unless I have to, I would rather just buy it from the town or something like that. But it, it just, it seems really silly for the town to own, you know, like my driveway, <laughs> you know, silly, so yeah. I, yeah, and it's, I'm, I'm hoping they see that as, as being silly too. And everybody just wants to make that kind of little silly problem go away. Yeah. And they're willing to play ball on, on some kind of solution, but you know, you never know when you're dealing with, with people like, you know, they may completely push back and say, no, we want to keep it. And this is why. And, you know, next, next thing you know, I'm, I'm calling my lawyer and <laughs> I, I don't want to have to go there. I really don't. Um, yeah. So what's going on with you? Well, I was, uh, I, I wanted to give a congratulations to our friend, Joanna Penn, who uh, celebrated her 500th anniversary or episode, 500th episode of the Creative Pen podcast, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, that's, um, she's, I, I'm about halfway through listening to it. And I think she said she's 11 years in at, yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the very first one, she was only writing nonfiction. She wasn't writing fiction. So it's, it's gotta be cool to be able to go back and, and listen to that. And I, I keep thinking of my daughter, like, you know, th these are all things that she can go back at some point and, you know, kind of take a look at and get a you know, little glimpse inside of her dad. Yeah. Um, you know, Joanna's, you know, family is probably the same thing and, you know, none of these things existed before. So it's, it's kind of cool from that standpoint. And then the other half of me is listening and, and like, I'm thinking, God, this is edited really well, <laughs> you know, cause, <laughs> cause she's doing like a flashback show, you know, she's, she's hitting like little snippets from all these the 500 different episodes. And, you know, like it, it, the audio is, is, is perfect. You know, like there's no sync levels. Like I'm listening, I'm thinking about all the technical stuff because I, now I know how much work all this is, and, you know, <laughs> When you're just a listener to a podcast, like you don't really, you take all that for granted. Right. You don't really think about it, but um, you know, like now I have a better handle on it. Um, I love the fact that you do it all, <laughs> which is even better. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. You somehow magically make it all work, but um, yeah, there, there's a, there's a ton going on there and, and yeah, con congratulations to her for, for hitting 500. Um, I'm sure she'll, she'll do a thousand if that's what she wants to do, if she wants to, to keep going. Yeah, I mean it's uh it's quite a milestone and and she's been doing it on the same show too. I, I think that's you know, in, in a world where uh most podcasters last about seven episodes, you know, she's at five hundred and uh that's that's an incredible accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's cool to see the ev the evolution of it, you know, like her her show and you know the topics and the guests and everything just changing with the the rolling times because the, the indie publishing thing has has changed drastically just in the last couple of years, let alone the last 11 12. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and like, this is, this is also something that I've felt, and I know you'll experience this as well. I'm sure Joanna went back and listened to those first couple episodes and, and couldn't believe it was the same person's voice on tape that it is now. Uh, yeah. like it, it, you, you, it, like you don't think about that. You're like, well, I'm just talking. I talk all the time, but it's different. You know, a podcast is a performance and, uh, I've gone back and listened to some of my early ones from 2013, 2014, and, and I can barely listen to them. Well, I, I keep a running count of the times that I say um on every podcast and I see that number dwindling, you know, the first couple, it was, you know, around a hundred or 200. And I think now I'm around at maybe double, you know, two dozen or so. So it's, it's getting smaller. Um, so the, there, there is a slight change there. Um, yeah, my yeah. mic, my mic has gotten better. My That's microphone true. Has gotten, yep. Equipment's improved. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just a total evolution all across the board and it's very cool to, to see somebody hit that kind of milestone. Yeah, for sure. Nice. Yeah. You know, a uh, couple uh, just housekeeping type deals. Um, HWA, I got an email from them yesterday. They've got their group healthcare info posted. Yes. Uh, so if you're an HWA member, definitely go in there. There's a phone number you can call, which is kind of unique in, in today's world because you, you tend to talk to websites and computers more than anything. But I guess there's a live person that will actually walk you through and try to help you find the right plan. Um, so I'm going to give it a shot and just kind of see what we come up with because, you know, as, as a full-time author, that's one of the things you don't really think about ahead of time. But, you know, like I've, I've got to get healthcare for my entire family. We don't have, you know, jobs that, you know, regular jobs where we can fall back on, like my wife doesn't have insurance or anything. She works from home too. So, you know, I, I have to try and find the best possible deal. So I'm hoping these kind of things are going to evolve too, you know, it, as organizations, you know, get, get better and, you know, we're going to hopefully be able to group together and, and get better rates and that kind of thing. But it, it's great to see that they they finally have that out there. Yeah. We'd love to hear back on that too, as you, as you start to dig around on that, because I think that's, that would be of, of interest for a lot of people, especially if they're in, either the Horror Writers Association or Science uh, Fiction and Fantasy Writers. That's because uh, I think both of those organizations are, are leveraging the same uh, insurance opportunities. Yeah, they are. And ITW has something in the, in the, the works too. So we'll, yeah. we'll see what happens. Um, your book. So we, I, I totally forgot a, a step and like I emailed you about it right after we, we recorded last week's episode. Um, but I, I wanted you to create a screenplay as, as the next step. So we, we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, first you need to knock out the hierarchy of characters and the other things that we, we discussed and just getting the story consistent from a dialogue standpoint. Um, but what I'd like to see you do as a next step is actually take that dialogue only you know, document that you have and turn it into a screenplay. Yeah. And I was uh, a bit intimidated by that task, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's honestly, it's not that bad. And it's, it's, and the reason being is, you know, you're basically just dumping your existing dialogue into the screenwriting template. And then you're going back in and you're adding, you know, little descriptors, you know, the Bob walks into the room and flicks on the light switch and, you know, now there's, and then dialogue, 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 and then this happens and then dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Um, but two, two things are going to come of that. And in the end, you're going to have a, a workable, you know, possibly sellable screenplay. Um, but it's also going to give you a, a solid framework for writing the novel, which I think is going to save you a lot of time. It, it's almost like a, a hybrid version of an outline, I, I guess, is one way of looking at it. Um, and I think just because of the way your story is, and I, we, I know we don't want to go into detail as far as what the story itself is, but it's it's really geared towards um, what I'm seeing happening on the film and TV side right now. Like I, I just talked to a friend of mine about a week ago. Uh, she's a producer, somebody that I went to college with. And like to give you an example of how far back we go, uh, her first job in the film industry, she was working on... Um, uh, the real world Miami. Um, 
And then, then she got into to film and she worked on Fair Game and True Lies and a lot of the movies, you know, something about Mary, a lot of the movies that they, they filmed down in the Miami area. And then she eventually moved out to L.A. and she's got an insane list of, of hit movies behind her and TV shows. Um, she just won an Emmy or got nominated for an Emmy for a show she's got on Netflix. Um, so, but, you know, a good friend of mine that I've known for 20 some years and, and she always gives me the inside dirt. And Hollywood right now is in a, a bad place, you know, just because of the, the virus situation. Um, essentially, a lot of the studios are just hemorrhaging money, just trying to keep you know, keep themselves afloat um, because there, there's nothing really coming in. I mean, it, I'm sure everybody's kind of noticed there's there's no first run movies anymore you know, or at this point. Like everybody's just sitting on them. Wonder Woman's gotten a new release date like five times already. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the last couple, you know, they just kind of released as pay-per-view events. And I don't think the money was there that they were hoping for. So now they're just, you know, sitting on them. The next James Bond movie, like all these movies are just in limbo. Um, so the studios right now, they're, they're basically trying to figure out how to finish up what they've already started. Um, so if you take like, you know, Jack Ryan on Amazon, you know, they're halfway through filming the next season. Um, they're trying to figure out how to get that other half in the can so that they can get it on the air and make some money out of it. And with a show like that, it's tricky because you've got giant crowd scenes in you know, foreign places and things, things along those lines. Um, you know, so they're relying very heavily on CGI, which is expensive, you know, to, to fake a lot of this stuff, but just to get it done. Um, but as far as new projects, they're looking at stuff, you know, basically what can we film in isolation? You know, if this virus doesn't go away, if we're still in the same boat a year from now, um, which, you know, God willing, we're not, but if we are, you know, they're, they're looking at projects that they can film in, in closed in environments, you know, so very small cast or inside of buildings, you know, th things along those lines. And, you know, without going again, without going into detail on your project, you know, your, your story really does kind of fit that mold. So it's a really good time to be out there shopping it. So if you end up with a screenplay and you're able to shop it, that's great. If you're able to sell it, that's even better. Uh, worst case, it's just another tool to help you get to the, the final product, which is, which is the novel. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to do it. Like, uh, of course I am. Uh, as I, as I was writing the dialogue only first draft, I was informally putting little snippets of character description or setting in between. So as a reference point for myself. So I think when I go to put it into the screenplay format, I already have some of that there. So I think that's going to work in my favor. I think what I'm more concerned about, which is probably not what I should be concerned about right now is I know there are pretty set standards for screenplays as far as like mm. page numbers go and like what scenes appear where and like I don't have any sense of that yet so I just might you know just dump it into a screenplay and not worry about that stuff until I get this uh, first draft of the screenplay done and then and then take a closer look. Well, see, that's going to end up being helpful, too, because simple guidelines is usually one page of a script equals one minute of, of filmed television or, or film. Um, so you want your screenplay to end up, you know, less than like between 100 and 120 would be ideal because that's yeah. you know, just a little under a two hour movie. Um, and it, as an author, it's not something I ever thought about. So like right now they're trying to adapt Fourth Monkey, which is, you know, roughly 500 pages or so long. And it's a two and a half, three hour movie if they were to try and film it as a whole. You know, so they start looking at all these different things that they you know might possibly combine, you know, combine these characters, take this, this out of the story, change this, tweak that um, to try and get it down to that that time. So by going through this exercise, if you're able to you know, you dump everything into the screen right software which you know Scrivener has a template uh, final draft is you know the, the standard but it's fairly pricey um, so I would probably stick with Scrivener um, but you know you get it all in there if you look at it and you're in, you end up at you know 200 some pages you, you know it's too long to be a, yeah. a, a feature film now it could be a television series you know that, that's always an option um, but that might mean that there's some fluff in there so if you can you know trim the story back even more you know trim some of that fat away you, you know you might end up with an even better book yeah 
Yeah, so it's going to be fun. That's all part of this wild experiment, so I'm going to give it a shot. Yep, absolutely. All right. So uh, who do we got coming on today? We have Kim Howe, KJ Howe, author of The Freedom Broker and reigning president of the ITW. Um, she, she's a, a, somebody that I really look up to in this industry. If you get a chance to, to go to Thriller Fest, introduce yourself to her. She's always, you know, for, you know, out in the front, um, you know, smiling and, and shaking every possible hand. Um, she will bend over backwards to help out every single person that she meets in this industry. And I have yet to see her not do that. I mean, she, she amazes me, at, you know, the generosity that she's got. And she's, you know, she's the kind of person like I, I like, I try to emulate, like if I could be just a little bit more like Kim, you know, I, I kind of, I, I seriously think that and there, there's very few people, you know, in, in the world that make me feel that way. And she is definitely one of them. So I, I can't hear, I, I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Yeah. It's going to be fun. And, and I think she's been the director of Thriller Fest for a long time. Hasn't she? Yeah. I don't know the exact numbers. I, I know Thriller Fest, I think is on its 15th or 16th year at this point. Um, I'm not sure how long she's been president. I, I know she started off, I, if I remember correctly, at, at maybe running Pitch Fest or or something along those lines. But I, I could be wrong there. Um, but yeah, you know, she's been part of that, you know, that for a, a very long time. And then she moved on to the, the actual running of the organization. Um, and you know, and it, it's just again, it's her personality. It's just the type of person she is. She's she's able to to wrangle cats and you know juggle people like Lee Child right next to you know somebody who's just trying to get through their first draft. Um, and she treats everybody equally, which is which is just great. Yeah. So this should be a great conversation. You ready to get into it? Absolutely. Here she is, KJ Howe. Well, I attended my very first Thriller Fest this past year and had an amazing time. I got so much value out of the panels and the presentations. So I figured I have to ask you how you ended up as executive director. There's gotta be a story there. Absolutely, I, I feel very lucky to have this job and I've been working with ITW for about 10 years now. And um, I went to the very first Thriller Fest and I thought to myself, what a great organization. I jumped in and I volunteered. And then as time went on, I was asked to be the assistant pitch fest director you know pitch fest of course i did the, it yeah i did that too that's aspiring authors so i did that then i took over pitch fest as the director and at that point liz berry you know married to steve berry uh was the executive director and she wanted to take on a different role in itw and so steve berry asked if i would have any interest in being coming the executive director for um, thriller fest and i said absolutely i would love to and it was the best decision i ever made i've learned so much i've met so many wonderful people so it's been a joy. So I was there since the beginning, really. Yeah, yeah. That's what year was that? Uh, two thousand six. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So that's a good. That's a pretty good run. You, and you, you've been attending them like, up until the point you became the director. Then. Correct. Yeah. It's well. This will be the fifteenth year of Thriller Fest in um, twenty twenty. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. Yeah. What's uh. What's the most difficult part of that job? Wow. Well, I mean, it's a great question. I love the authors. That's the easy part. And almost everyone is a joy to work with. I think, you know, it really is making sure we have enough sponsorships. ITW is a not-for-profit organization, and it's the umbrella you know, organization above Thriller Fest. And we don't take any dues, right? If you're a published author, you don't need to pay dues with ITW. So to manage that and have a conference, which you can imagine in New York City is rather expensive. Yes. We have to have sponsors and we have to, you know, charge for registration at Thriller Fest. 
And so I think that's the hardest thing is to try to make sure that we're staying above, you know, keeping our head above water and making sure that we're getting enough funding to keep going because it's such like, as you mentioned, and I'm very grateful to hear your experience was excellent. It's so profoundly life-changing for so many authors to attend Thriller Fest. Magic happens every year. And so we don't want to stop doing it. So really, yeah. So if there's any billionaires listening, we'd be delighted to hear from you. <laughs> well, speaking of magic happening, uh, tell us what happened at Thriller Fest in 2018. Sure. Well, I mean, it was every year is fantastic, right? <laughs> I mean, and we, we did have George R. R. Martin come. Is that what you're referring no, to? Well, that was great. But I was kind of setting it up for you to, to do a little humble brag. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Well, okay. Let's, let's put it this way. George Martin and I walked home the same type of trophy and it was mind blowing. Nice. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I actually have a wonderful picture I took of George and I, um, you know, that night holding our trophies it was very special memory. I'll keep close to my heart forever. But yeah, I was very fortunate to win the best first novel um, thriller award with the, for the freedom broker. And so that was, you know, spectacular. It, honestly, like all these years I've been working on my writing, you know, taking retreats and, and courses and going back and doing my master's and just in an effort to really learn the craft because I came from medical writing and medical writing, of course, is very telling, you know, instead of showing. And so it was very difficult to switch and take that journalistic voice and make it more dramatized. But I had so much fun learning and Thank goodness it worked out okay. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. That's fantastic. Uh, it's it's quite an accomplishment, and I could uh, this past year I saw you know um, some of the people who were nominated for the awards, and and uh, I wasn't at the the ceremony itself, but I can only imagine that must have been so validating for you, and and feel so good after uh, not only going to that that conference year after year, but just sort of working on your craft for so many years as well. Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I really do believe that um, almost everyone I've ever met who's had some success in this business has worked and toiled in the in this in the coal mines for years and years. It's not an easy thing to break into, and as well, the craft is challenging. There's so many aspects and nuances to the book. I think back to what you know before when I wasn't you know taking writing courses, and I used to read a fantastic book and think, oh, that author's very good. And now all I think is that author worked their butt off. Right. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, there's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Carol Dweck's uh, book Mindset. And uh, it, it, for, for listeners who may not have heard about it, it's, the, it's sort of a scientific study about uh, the difference between people with a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And they're exactly what you think, right? People with a growth mindset feel like they can always learn, they can always develop new skills. People with a fixed mindset, feel like, well, this is how I was born. And I, I'm just not good at math. So therefore, I'm never going to be good at math. But I look at stories like yours, and I think it's it's so empowering and encouraging because you, you it's a growth mindset. And I took that um, approach with my kids. I would never tell my kids when they were small, wow, you're such a good drawer. I would say, wow, you worked really hard on that drawing. And right. I think that's that's the difference, right? It's It's the appreciation of the work that has to go into it. Yeah, I mean, and, and also, I feel like writing is a journey, not a destination, right? You're constantly learning, and you're on this journey of exploration. And I, I sort of think, like you said, I love that, you know, mindset idea and having an open mindset allows you growth in all areas of your life. I'm an avid tennis player, and I keep taking lessons trying to improve my skills in that area, too. Great. Fantastic. And you 
received your MFA from Seton Hill University. Is that correct? Yeah. It's, so, a, great, it's a great um, program. Yeah. And, I'm familiar with it. I grew up in Pittsburgh and I went to the University of Pittsburgh and my wife's family live in Irwin, which is right down the road from Greensburg. And so uh, I'm, I'm familiar with the program. Um, what was... What was the highlight of that pro- program for you? What was what did you walk away with? What, one or two things that you thought, wow, I, I that was such a valuable experience. It's a great question, and I, I think the answer lies in the way they, they organize it, such that you need to um, have critique partners in the program, and you have to read and share thoughts, and you also have mentors. And I felt that because they set it up, that we had to have critique partners in different genres that we weren't always just, you know, because I'm a thriller girl doesn't mean I have to critique and learn that. And what I gained from that was the fact that, you know, I met romance authors, sci-fi, historical, you name it. And each and every subgenre, I was able to take an element that would hopefully make my thriller stronger. For example, you know, there's relationships in it. I gained a lot of knowledge from romance writers about how to build that strong, you know, sexual tension or the, um, you know, conflict between two characters, right? And world building was a great lesson to learn from the science fiction fantasy books. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> those, those, I know some of those folks personally, and they, that world, they take that world building pretty seriously. And, and I, I don't know, see, this is where, like, you know, I write kidnap and ransom novels. And I've spent six years researching kidnapping. I've met some of the top kidnap negotiators in the world, former hostages, executives in the insurance industry that deal with kidnapping, a host of people. And I see that as world building for me. That, it's pretty, right? I'm so glad you brought that up because I was like, I want to know more about the Freedom Broker series and sort of what you, the preparation that's involved in that. So can you tell us some of the stories about what it would take to get these interviews and, and sort of, you know, how, how you work that into the pre-production for the novel itself. Well, I always joke around with people that my hardcovers are three in one and a great travel companion because um, hopefully, you know, you're on a flight, you want an entertaining thriller, turn pages. Um, second, you're going to learn a lot about travel safety. So wherever you get to your destination, you'll be a little safer because you'll be a little more aware of what's out there. And the third one is that all, you know, it, if else fails and the kidnappers are coming for you, you can use the hardback as a weapon, you know, <laughs> over their head. But, but sincerely, I do love to be entertained and educated at the same time. And I, I try to inject that into my book so that people will put it down and think about some of the information they learned as well as hopefully the characters, right? That, you know, it becomes like a double whammy that you're gaining knowledge and hopefully enjoying a little bit of escapism and fiction as well, you know? Yeah. But, um, I had, I feel very, very honored that these people have trusted me with their stories. Um, Believe it or not, how I started out was I read absolutely everything I could on kidnapping and came to the realization that it wasn't even close to being enough to to writing a series about the subject. And so I Googled kidnap and ransom conference and there was one. Wow. It was 80 people in Miami, Florida at the Biltmore Hotel. And I was the only person there that wasn't involved, obviously, in the kidnapping world. And after the conference, the woman who organizes it said, came up to me and said, you know, I have to be honest with you, I was really worried that you would be kind of shunned and sitting in the corner alone because they're very, you know, secretive and, and it's dark and, see, you know, and, and she said, but every time I talked to you, I saw you, you were talking to someone. 
And I think what it is, is that I'd done my homework up front. So I knew the, the base level of knowledge. So I could ask, you know, hopefully intelligent questions and really show that I wanted to learn about the profession. As well, I wasn't a journalist reporting on a case of theirs, right? I didn't want to say, okay, what about this case? How did you handle it? It was more like, no, 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 let's go to the bar and you tell me how you, you know, tackle, what's, what's your day like? You know, where do you travel? What are the biggest obstacles when you negotiate with kidnappers and these kind of things? And they got really into it and started telling me war story after war story. And from that, I kind of built like contacts that, and then those people will say, oh, you know what? You should really talk to Bob. Go talk to Bob. And then they make the introduction. And that's the difference because I'm coming in as an accredited person um, with, you know, an established, uh, you know, kind of reputation of being professional and treating them, you know, with great dignity, every, you know, issue. And I also ask uh, my experts to read my books before they come out. Oh, that's wise, KJ. <laughs> that's very yeah. smart. Uh, then I catch Eric, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, as you... As you have and continue to do this kind of research and, and write these kidnapping ransom thriller novels, and you don't have to mention anything specific, but what are the, the tropes or conventions that you see in other books or television or movies that are completely wrong, that are, that are just myths and you just wish you know, creators would stop using those? That's a fun one. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, there, there's so much. First of all, I think when you write a fictional books, you have to have a bit of license with the truth because in, in reality, kidnappings go on for days, years, months, like, you know what I'm saying? Like endless, it could be a long, long time. For example, one of my, um, you know, close friends who was a former hostage was held for almost a thousand days. So, you know, you're not going to make the book that long. Right. So you're going to shorten the time frames, things like that you adjust. However, one of the big things you, you see in movies, and it's for dramatic effect, is that the freedom broker or response consultant who is directly with the kidnapper um, never talks to the kidnapper themselves. And you see it in every movie they're talking to the kidnapper, right? But what happens is this, the intensity that you need to have and focus when you're a kidnap negotiator, 24 seven, you're on. So usually they rotate them after about three weeks because you, you otherwise you get burned out. It's very intensive, you're with the hostage's family, it's um, the, the worst time of those you know, people's lives. And so what happens is you choose a family member, a delegate that you feel is trustworthy, patient, calm, and can handle direction. And you train them on what to say and how to handle this situation. And this way, there's always one voice on the end of the line and it's the same voice. And whenever the freedom brokers you know, sort of cycle out, one comes in, trains with the other, and then leaves. Um, that way, it just avoids burnout for the people who are negotiating and keeps a one kind of building a relationship with one person that's a family member delegate. So that's an interesting one. Wow. Yeah. I was just uh, watching the Chris Voss masterclass. I think yes. I love Voss. Chris Voss. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, Actually. Yeah. He's, he's brilliant. And um, one of my experts is a guy named Gary Nesner who used to be um, the, the hostage um, negotiation chief of the FBI Chris worked for him. Ah, okay. Okay. So I, I'm curious, like, it seemed like he did more of like, um, like bank holdups and that sort uh, style of negotiation. Is that different than say, um, uh, the child of a Senator who's kidnapped for ransom is that, are those different types of negotiations? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And there are definitely different types of kidnapping. And it's unbelievable, the variety. For example, you have kidnapped for ransom. You have political kidnappings, right, where they don't want money. They just want, you know, propaganda. You also have virtual kidnappings where there isn't actually a kidnapping, but you call someone, pretend that you have their loved one. Their loved one is unavailable at the time. They can't prove it. And they have a quick cash grab. There's also express kidnappings where you'll take um, someone to an ATM and about 11.45 p.m., make, sure, make, make them withdraw the full amount and then take them back at 12.02, make them withdraw the full amount for the next day and then get, dump them off. There's also tiger kidnapping, which is when, let's say there's a bank you know, officer or let's say a pharmaceutical executive that has access to either codes or you know, information or a formula, for example, for a drug that you want. You could hold their family hostage until they give up what you would like. And that's called tiger kidnapping because you're basically using their family or someone very close to them that's meaningful as a, you know, executive. So there's a host of different type of kidnappings. And there's also, like what you said, what Chris Voss did was more local and domestic, right? Where let's say someone's, you know, kid, you know kidnapped or taken or uh, held hostage in a bank or somewhere that we know the hostage is quite often with kidnappings abroad, the captives are held in a private location that no one knows where they are. So it's not like they can you know, rescue them and even rescues are incredibly dangerous. Usually you have a one chance in five making it out from a successful rescue. So just to give you some scope, that's the differences. So when you go in internationally, it's almost always um, kidnapped for ransom or, or uh, some sort of propaganda like ISIS, right? They grab the journalists and make a, a display on those horrible videos. Well, you must be doing something right because I uh, I was looking on the Freedom Broker, uh, the book one, and I, I saw um, I, I'm not I'm not a big time thriller guy, but I saw Lee Child, Clive Cussler, and James Patterson uh, blurbs, and and so you clearly are doing something right. Can, can you tell us a little bit about your approach for the Freedom Broker? Um, as far as like, are you focusing on certain types of kidnappings? Is it mm-hmm. uh, is it is it sort of um, a Jack Reacher style series? Like, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So uh, I wanted to create an alpha female character because we have the wonderful Jack Reacher, we have Jack Ryan, we have John Rain and a host of other, you know, very powerful male figures. But I was like, hey, wait a second, we need some girl power in there, don't we? And as a result of that, I created Thea Paris. But I also wanted to make sure that Thea wasn't a caricature. You know, one of those kind of Wonder Woman comic book heroes who is invulnerable and said, I gave her type 1 diabetes. I'm a former medical writer, as I mentioned, and I wrote a lot about diabetes, and my grandfather had it. And I thought to myself, this is going to give her a very humanizing element, and that not everything's easy. And also, Thea Paris decides to become a kidnap negotiator, because when she was eight years old, she watched as her 12-year-old brother was taken and held hostage for nine months. And when he came back, he was never the same. And for her, it was... I think, you know, they they talk a lot about survival guilt. This is kind of a similar thing where it's like his life could have been hers if she was the one taken. And she decides that, you know, it destroyed her family, really, his captivity and what happened to him. He became a child soldier. And, you know, it just wasn't ever the same. So the story is really a lot about Thea and her family and the background in The Freedom Broker to set the stage for the series. 
and you go to Santorini, Greece, Athens, and Zimbabwe. And I, I always try to visit the places in my books so that they're authentic and you can really feel and taste and sense the setting. Because I, I, I feel the setting is definitely a character in its own right. Yeah, excellent. And if, if readers want to know more about Tia, she's got a bio page on your website. Exactly. <laughs> so, like, is that really her? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let's... So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, your website, your day-to-day, I mean, there's there's all the craft stuff and we can geek out all day about story and, and, and the research that you do. But, you know, what does, what does your day look like just on, any given day from the time you get up to the time you go to bed? What, what type of things or activities are you doing and, um, and how are you managing the business side of things? Yeah, that's great. I'm very busy because I basically have two full-time jobs, right? I'm an author and I'm running... Thriller Fest as executive director. So it's it's a busy schedule. What I love to do is I love to write in the mornings because that is when our subconscious is still kind of, you know, lazing about and has a lot of creativity and you're not tired and you can just plow out the words and get them out there. And I tend to do the administrative side of my life, you know, whether it's Thriller Fest emails or, you know, uh, social media for KJ Howe or a variety of other things I'm involved in. I'm actually a part of Rogue Women Writers as well, which is a group of eight women who, you know, blog and we all write kind of, you know, this sort of kick butt fiction. So it's really endless and I, I never really stop working, but I always take a break during the day to either play tennis or go to spin class because I'm a big believer that, you know, a sharp mind helps, you know, with if you if you go to exercise, you get stress relief and you also feel invigorated. And quite often, if I have a plot issue, I've written myself into a corner. Exercise is the way I get the answer. So true, right? I hear that so often, whether you're swimming or biking or hiking, those, those things that you're getting hung up on when you're, when you're involving your body in something physical, the, the answers just sort of appear. Yeah, they say that rhythmic activities like swimming and, and running and cycling are the best ways to get the mind working because it's, it's, it's sort of like you relax because it's a quick on problems or actually sleep is excellent too. If you tell yourself before you go to bed at night, I really want to solve this problem. Quite often you wake up with the answer. Yes. I've used that as well. That's a great, great idea. Just, you just kind of think about it before you go to sleep and then just let your, your subconscious Mm -hmm. work on it. Yeah. What's, uh, what are the, the types of things that you do, uh, to get, new to acquire new readers how, how do you how do you find the thriller fans who may not have heard of kj Howe yet absolutely um i do a ton of book clubs i love doing book clubs because i talk about travel safety i you know share my knowledge about kidnapping which people seem to find interesting because it's not something that's commonly known we talk about you know different statistics and everything i love doing talks i also love teaching about writing uh i would just down at I was very lucky to be invited as a keynote at the um, Atlanta Writers Conference. Uh, I also um, go to different conferences and, and speak on panels or do classes like BoucherCon and, of course, ThrillerFest and a host of other ones. Capital Crime in London is brand new. And so I just I try and always put myself out there. I think nothing beats face-to-face time with your readers and people, connecting with them on a different level. Now, you also have to make sure you're have a strong presence online because of today's world and it's so digital. 
And I really enjoy that. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I'm just, you know, always looking for new ways to reach people. I've also done, because Thea Paris has diabetes, I have also reached out to the diabetes community. And I've been very honored that the American Diabetes Association, the Freedom Broker, and Scott Jack in the they felt it was an authentic portrayal of diabetes. Wow, that's great. That's uh, mm -hmm. that's going to be so empowering too, because I'm sure there are millions of people with diabetes who very rarely get to read about a main character or protagonist who has their illness. Very true. That's one of the reasons I was really motivated to do this, because I, I if you if you think about a thriller genre or actually any genre, how many books can you say that the protagonist has a chronic illness? Because I struggle, like I was thinking, I mean, uh, Jeffrey Deaver with Lincoln Rhyme, he's a quadriplegic, so that would be one. But I, I, other than alcohol and drug addiction, which is prevalent in a lot of people's characters, I really can't think of many characters with chronic illnesses, and I really wanted to change that. Well, that's some, some great advice uh, that, you, that you gave about using the face-to-face -face connections. I, I agree with you. It's the reason I, I run and attend uh, in-person events. They're, they're certainly not cheaper or easier, but I feel like they're, they're worth it in the end. Uh, so can you, can you uh, give us a little more detail about how you run these book clubs? Sure. Well, I mean, I get invited, you know, to, and I've done it on Skype and I've done it in person as well, because it's really nice to be able to do it with Skype because you're in their living room. They set up a nice TV screen, and you can do it and interact with everyone. They, they have it so you can see them as well. And obviously in person is always better, but sometimes, you know, I'm in Toronto and they're, you know, in Chicago. And so it works out really well. Um, it's usually word of mouth through friends that, or different book clubs. Um, I have my website that I love doing book clubs. So it's really getting in and, and you have a really lovely evening. I've made some wonderful friends through this opportunity that have had me back for both books because they've really enjoyed the evening and you know have a lot of laughter and and i think people are fascinated by the world of an author and they want to know like how books are made and what's the process and how do you how much input do you have on a cover and all these other questions that i'm able to hopefully give some insight into yeah that's great uh, i i think we we forget we live siloed lives where we we're dealing with mostly other authors all the time and, and a lot of this right. knowledge is just assumed and then you step out into the general public and, and people will pick up a book at, you know, a bookstore or at a Walmart and they have no idea how it was made, where it came from, like what it takes. So I think including incorporating that aspect in, into a book club is, is a great idea. And I'm sure you get a lot of uh, word of mouth referrals from this. Yeah. And I think I love doing library events as well do a lot of those just wherever because I, I think that's absolutely super and I've done a, I, I did two tours like 13 city tours as well for the freedom broker and skyjack so went from city to city to different bookstores met books you know bookstore owners independents um, some people on Barnes and Noble it's just fantastic I really believe that you know that even in our age of online you know sort of you know everything's there I really feel that connecting with people face to face changes it all because once they know you as a person it becomes very different it's not so much this name on a cover it's a person yeah couldn't agree more 
I feel like we may have touched upon this, but uh, it's sort of a standard question I like to ask every guest yeah. on the podcast. And you can answer it however you want, but I feel like the the publishing industry is in such a state of transition right now that this is kind of an interesting question. So mm-hmm. what is your approach to the business of writing? And you can answer that however you want. Mm-hmm. Well, if I was going to advise someone who's new, is that what you're sort of saying or just yeah, that? Yeah, sort of like, you know, you're, you're an author, but you also have to be a, a business person. So, you know, what Absolutely. is your, what is your, like, you know, your um, approach, your method, you, you know, your values around being a business person? Okay, that's, that's good. Um, first thing I would say is you need to pick a topic that you're incredibly passionate about because for some reason, mine is kidnapping. We, we won't go into the psychology of that one. <laughs> uh, but, but sincerely, you need to because if publishers really love series because when someone discovers you in book four, they can go back and read the, the first three and that results in a lot of sales. So series are so hot that if you're going to be involved in a series, you have to make sure that the subject matter is absolutely gripping to you. And that's why I've really, you know, delved into kidnapping and, and feel I try to become a specialist in that. So the, that, that's what I would say to, to someone. I would say, look around and see what's missing because there's plenty that's missing. I didn't want to write another, you know, police procedural because I want to do something different. I wanted an alpha female because there really wasn't one out there that I could see that was doing this. I also didn't know of any main characters who were kidnap negotiators. I also didn't know any characters who had a chronic illness. So try to be fresh, try to be different so you can develop your brand and try to do everything you can to improve that brand and spread that brand. For example, you know, like I said, I've become very good friends with many people in the kidnapping industry and I'm always trying to do travel safety talks. So I'm using the knowledge I've gained through the hard work and research I've done to help other people. And I think if you can have a nonfiction angle and help others somehow, that it's much better than just saying, Hey, read my book, right? You, you want, I think you need to think about giving and not taking and hope that people will say to themselves, Hey, listen, that was very interesting. I think I'm, I'm tweaked to read the, you know, intrigued enough to read the book, but you can't, there's nothing worse than a hard sell, even if it's vacuum cleaners you're selling. And I think the best thing in the world to do is just to intrigue people with nonfiction elements of your novels. And everyone has them, right? Everybody has nonfiction elements in their, in their novels. Do that and then use that as a platform so that you can become an expert in some way, shape, or form. All right. Kim Howe. Uh Little little side note here. Uh, clearly, this was recorded a few months ago, <laughs> prior to the pandemic and the cancellation of Thriller Fest and her promotion, so to speak. So, I uh, just want to set the context. Yeah, and I'm gonna have to reach out to her and just see if we can help her out with her her connection because <laughs> her her yeah. phone kept cut, cutting in and out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's again just a, a wealth of knowledge. I mean, some of the things that she threw out there, I, I had no idea she got her MFA from from Seton Hill. Um, you know, I, when I lived in Pittsburgh, a lot of the authors that I, I got to know over there were either, you know, teachers in that program or they were students there. Um, so that, that's a great MFA program if, if you're yes, looking to, to get involved there. Um, and she also mentioned that how everybody has worked in the coal mines before they found success. And that, yeah. that is so true. Yeah, I, I have yet to meet the author who writes a book, you know, right out of the gate and, and you know, hits like 
the New York Times bestseller list or a huge advance gets the movie deal where everything just lines up perfectly. Um, you know, I, I've had so many stories just written about me where it says I'm a, an overnight success, but you know, they leave out the part where I've been at this for 23 years before <laughs> that, you know, it, th things in this industry are just like anything else. They, they tend to move really slow. And then all of a sudden they don't, they're fast. And, you know, I, I think Stephen King had mentioned at one point, you've got a lifetime to write your first book and six months to write the next. And it, it's very similar to being on a roller coaster. Like the beginning part of your career is, you know, that ticking of the car as it's climbing the hill. And then, then you reach the top of that hill and then it doesn't slow down. Once you go over, it just it gets faster and faster and faster, and you just have to hold on for the ride. Um, but if, if you get a chance, talk to any author because they all have a backstory about all the the horrible things they had to do before that that first novel hit. Yeah, I mean, she was really clear in, in talking about the importance of working on your craft and and always learning and having a growth mindset and exactly what you're saying that you know it's it's a long game and like if you want to get rich quick scheme, uh, becoming an author is not not the best path to get there. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. What was that book that you mentioned on mindset? Because I, I definitely want to check that out. Yeah, Carol Dweck. It's D W E C K. It's called the book is called Mindset, and uh, okay. it, it came out about ten years ago. But it's it's sort of the gold standard in looking at the differences between growth uh, mindset versus fixed mindset. Yeah, and it's so true. And I'm just gonna throw a quick example out there. My my wife is is crazy smart. Um, like she amazes me sometimes with some of the things that she comes up with. But when she was little, she had trouble with math. And her yeah, and when I say little, you know, this is like maybe three, four years old. Her mom told her, you know, it's okay, you know, if, if you're not good at math. Um, and and she you know, said that a couple of different times through her life and, and basically gave her the impression that, you know, you could still do very well if you're not good at math, you know, which is good. But she kind of drilled into my wife's head that, you know, like she would never be good at math just because of the word choice that she she used. Um, you know, it's, and at a very young, you know, age and, you know, to this day, my wife still struggles with math, you know, and, and I know it stems from, you know, like these early childhood developmental things. Um, and, you know, I, I, as a parent now, like it's, it's something that we, we talk about quite a bit and, you know, just how you, you know, how you congratulate your child, how you reward your child, how you point out what they're doing well and what they're not uh, doing well at. Um, it, it's so important that you get those kind of things right. So I'm, I'm going to check out the book just because it's going to kind of help me, you know, dealing with my own, my own daughter. Yeah, um, it, it really does. And even, you know, as a classroom teacher and a parent, I just that one little thing fundamentally shifted the way I helped kids, which is, you know, you don't, you don't, fo you don't focus on what you consider to be their natural talent or natural ability. Instead, you praise the effort that it takes to, for them to produce whatever they produce. And that reinforces the idea that, yeah, I have a growth mindset and anything I'm willing to work at, I can improve upon. It doesn't mean like, you know, if, if you, you know, work uh, every day and throwing the football, you're going to win the Super Bowl. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that you can, you can make improvements and you can change and learn throughout your entire life and that you're not just bad at math for your whole life. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's weird how these little tiny little you know, things that you can tweak, you know, the early developmental stages of a child can, can, you know, follow them for the rest of their life, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. Um, but just to get back on track here, um, cause I'm, I'm taking us way off in the weeds. <laughs> uh, it, um, she brought up that she uh, reads different genres or she likes to pull from different genres. And I, I think that's huge because I, I know a lot of authors that don't do that. They tend to read, you know, what the style that they write. So if they like to write action adventure, they read nothing but action adventure. Um, they watch nothing but action adventure. 
adventure. And, and I think that's a mistake. I, you know, I, I personally read Westerns. I read romance novels. I, I read sci-fi. I, I try to, you know, if it's a good story and it can hold me, I don't really care what the genre is. Um, but, you know, if you're writing a horror novel, there's a good chance there might be romance involved in that novel. And if you're reading romance novels, you're going to get it better. You're, you're going to you're going to learn how to tell that part of the story a little bit better than you might have if you if you didn't. If you're just getting that you know same knowledge just from reading other horror books that might have a touch of romance in them. So I think that's you know diversifying like that is is huge as as an author. Um, one of the other things that she, that she threw, I, I just I wrote down famous first words. Let's go to the bar um, because <laughs> anybody who's ever gone to a writers conference, like every deal that I've ever put together at a writers conference, has taken place at the bar. Like that, that is the place to hang out, and you don't necessarily have to drink while you're there. I mean, I, I I'd fake it at this point a lot of times. <laughs> I'll, I'll get a glass with with some water in it, um, but you know, like that's that's you know it's so easy for an author to just, you know, go and hide in your room because we're all introverts. You know, we, we don't want to socialize. Um, but you know, I, I personally force myself to go hang out at the bar because that's where people kind of let their guard down. They're willing to talk and a, a lot, you know, tends to happen there. Um, so yeah, so it's it, it, in the corporate world, I think it's, let's go to the golf course. I think in the writer's world, it tends to be, let's go to the bar. Yep. So true. And like I said, this was filmed or recorded, you know, prior to, everything changing, but like in the value of the in-person event, and that's going to come back at some point. Like that's, that's a question of when it might look a little different, feel a little different, but uh, I, I love the way Kim uses book clubs and how she's, uh, you know, connecting with readers in, at in-person events. And I think that's something we should all be remembering in this time of zoom and, and online lives that we are going to get back to that at some point. Yeah. Book clubs have been huge for me. I, I, uh, for every one of my books, uh, I, I create a list of um, book club questions. Um, they typically end up getting printed in the paperback, you know, not in the hardcover, but they put them out later and I always put them up on my website. Um, and I make myself available to book clubs as much as possible because you know, you're sitting down and you're talking to 10, 20, 50, hundred people sometimes. Um, especially when you can do it, you know, on Skype or zoom or one of those types of services, you can, you can speak to a large group and every one of those people, you know, they run out and they tell a friend about your book. So it's a great way to get in front of audiences. And I actually learned about this from a, a woman who wrote a book called the memory box. Um, and her name is a escaping me, um, which is kind of ironic considering it's a book about <laughs> memory. Um, but it was, it was an indie published title and it hit the New York Times bestseller list. And and she credited book uh, clubs for, for getting it there. Um, and it, it's so true. I mean, they're, they're, they're able to do that. So seek them out. I, I have yet to find a good source of book clubs. Like I'd love to find a list of book clubs or a way to get yourself in front of them as an indie author or a traditionally published author. But it, as far as I know, that doesn't exist. So if somebody knows of one, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, slight tangent. Um, you reminded me, you, you recommended that I read the Eddie and the cruisers book and, yes. uh, I'm halfway through and I can't put it down. And what I've noticed in there is the dialogue is so great. It is each character has their own way of speaking that you don't need any tags or anything to know who's talking. It's a fantastic book so far. Yeah, I don't know why I'm I'm so hooked on that particular franchise. I don't know if it's the the music, if it's the story from you know, because the, the book is just as good as the movie, and the movie has been a favorite of mine since I was a kid. Um, I was literally listening to the soundtrack last night with my daughter while I was getting ready for bed. Um, you know, so it's like it, it there, there's something about it. I, maybe it was just the perfect storm of all the different things in, you know in my life that all kind of came together, like that style of music with that particular story. Um, but it, it's told so well. Um, the book is slightly different from the movie, but you know, for the most part, they kind of captured it. 
Um, and it kind of came, comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, if you take a, a book, you have to com sometimes combine things and tweak little things in order to make a, a story come across. Um, and Kim touched on that as well. You know, like if you, you know, in, in her world, the kidnap ransom world, you know, there, there may be 10 people involved that do different things, but in a book, you're going to want to trim that down to, you know, maybe one person or two. So um, a good example of this is if you've ever watched the show CSI, uh, you know, the people on that show, they've got, you know, their five or six main cast members that tend to do virtually everything. But in real life, that's probably a hundred different people. Um, and that's something that I try to, you know, stay conscious of as I'm writing. Um, you, you know, I think you can take a lot of license there. And I think it's necessary to do that. You don't want to have a huge cast just to create, keep something realistic. Uh, and, you know, so you got to figure out where that line is with, with your own story. But you, an author should never be afraid to combine characters, you know, and job titles or positions or things like that into to less characters in order to get the story across. Yep. Yeah, totally agree. So uh, Kim was just fantastic. I was so thrilled to be able to, to talk to her. And uh, she she hung out afterwards and helped me work through a plot problem on on the project we've been talking about and just was so helpful and gracious with her time. I really appreciated it. Yeah, she's she's a great person. And again, if you go to Thriller Fest, you know, take a minute and, and seek her out and, and say hello. Awesome. So who's uh, who's coming up next week? Next, we've got we've got Tess Garrison, um, which is another one of these people that, um, you know, you, she's at Thriller Fest pretty much every year. Um, a, a great person to talk to. Um, I, I, I went up and asked her about the movie Gravity. Um, I, are you familiar with the story at all? Like yeah. what, what happens surrounding this? So essentially, she, she wrote the book Gravity. Um, and it got optioned um, by, I forget what studio it was, um, but that studio ended up getting bought by another studio and the, you know, they, they basically took over the projects and then that got taken over by somebody else, but everything got bounced around. Eventually the movie Gravity got made. Um, it's got George Clooney in it and I forget who else, but you know, it's a great movie. Um, Sandra virtually, Bullock, I, I think maybe was in that too. Yeah, maybe. Um, but it's, you know, it essentially follows the same storyline as her book. Um, but she didn't get paid for it. She didn't get credited for it. Um, they basically stole her story um, and said that, no, this is based on so-and-so's screenplay, um, even though his screenplay was based on her book. And, you know, they ended up in this huge court battle over it. So it's it's a sticky point with her and like I, I you know first time I met her I asked her about it straight off the bat because I'm that asshole that just wants to know the the, de the details you know like first time I met first time I met David Morell I you know we talked about the licensing rights for uh, Rambo um, you know which I didn't realize was a sore spot with him but you know unfortunately he didn't get the license you just go you just cut right in for the yeah kill. like I, again this is a whole Aspie thing like I don't I don't think about these things like you know to me this is a business problem that I need to solve so I'm asking you know a question of somebody who's been there um, but you know I'm not realizing when I asked that question, I'm dredging up 10 years worth of therapy that they probably used to, <laughs> to write the situation in their own life. Um, but, but she's a, a great author. Um, she, she crosses a, a couple of lines, which I really love. She, she writes very literary, um, which is, you know, a lot of times in my world, it's a bad word. You know, if you say, oh, that, that leans literary, like, you know, it's almost like I, I don't watch movies that win awards because most of the time it's, it's not the kind of movie that's for me. I, I tend to stay away from literary type novels, but <laughs> Tess has figured out a, a way to take literary writing and combine it with a thriller um, and, and create, you know, fantastic books. I mean, I, I haven't read a, a clunker yet of hers. They're, they're, they're always good. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one. I can't wait to hear, hear what she has to say. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Looking forward to it. So. All right. Well, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. 
Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.